You're listening to Design Tomorrow. Have you ever been so excited by an idea that you can actually feel it in your body? I mean, really feel it. Maybe you feel euphoric. A lightness comes over you. Your senses become heightened. You can feel the blood flow through your veins. You feel good. Well, you feel this way for a reason, a physiological one. Endorphins. We all kind of know what they are, right? Well, endorphins are hormones produced by our nervous system, specifically something called endogenous opioid neuropeptides. Their name, endorphins, comes from the root of two other words, endo from endogenous and orphan from morphine. Basically, it means a morphine-like substance that comes from within the body. See, our bodies have evolved to produce and release endorphins to protect us from pain. These hormones actually block pain signals from reaching our brains, and so they allow us to feel great in moments of great stress. And that, of course, helped us to survive the early days of humanity and become who we are today. We could run for our lives, barefoot over painful terrain for miles and miles if we had to. Thanks to our own internal drug dealer, in the pituitary gland. It's funny how that same process can kick in even if we've just thought of a new and exciting idea. So imagine how the people who discovered endorphins must have felt. Probably exactly like what they discovered, that's how. That is, until they realized that they weren't the first. You see, endorphins were discovered basically simultaneously by two different research teams working independently. In 1975, two Scottish scientists found these opioid neuropeptides in the brain of a pig, and unbeknownst to them, another pair of American scientists found them in a cow. Imagine that emotional and chemical roller coaster, the endorphin rush of discovery, and the crash at having to share it with a stranger. All four of them had to get used to the idea that their great idea maybe wasn't so great after all, and definitely wasn't theirs. After all, there are few things we covet and cling to more than our ideas. Perhaps we should rethink that instinct. And so today, I want to think about a question I know we've all asked of ourselves. What's the value of an idea? of our ideas. Are our ideas as valuable as we think they are? And what might change about how we act on our ideas once we start thinking differently about how we value them and how unique they really are? You're listening to Design Tomorrow. I'm Chris Butler. Stay tuned.
Design Tomorrow is a podcast about design, technology, and being human, which admittedly is a lot to be about. But in all things, we hope to grow in our awareness that what we do and think today can create a better tomorrow. You can follow the show on Twitter at Design Tomorrow. Just leave all the vowels out. That's at D-S-G-N-T-M-R-R-W. You can also visit the show's website at designtomorrow.co. And if you want to get in touch directly, you can email me at chris at designtomorrow.co. I'd love to hear from you. And now, let's get back to the show. Have you ever actually stopped to consider the value of an idea? Maybe you haven't, but I bet you have a sense for that value, and I bet that sense is inflated. You see, our ideas are probably not as valuable as we think they are. They're certainly not as unique, and actually, that can be proven. As it turns out, many of the most important ideas that have shaped history We're just as unoriginal as our ideas are. I'm serious. Remember our endorphin-discovering friends? Well, their story isn't an isolated one. Most of the big, world-changing ideas in history were thought of by multiple people at the same time. You can't get much more unoriginal than that. But unoriginal doesn't mean unimportant. In fact, in the 20th century alone, Almost 70 different scientific discoveries and inventions were the result of multiple people working on their own with no idea that they were about to share the credit with someone else. And these weren't small things. We're talking about things like chromosomes, vitamin A, the Big Bang Theory, not the show, the actual theory, the integrated circuit, and the jet engine. See, when you look at just one story, like the one about endorphins, a simultaneous discovery just looks like coincidence, like a fluke. But when you look at a list of dozens of history-shaping simultaneous discoveries over the course of just one century, it starts to look like the status quo. And it makes you wonder whether there's any such thing as a truly original idea. This is the basic premise of the theory of multiples, that ideas are ultimately the product of people plus environment. And perhaps more importantly, at least as far as our hungry egos are concerned, that ideas are inevitable. Think of all of the ideas in the world as one big unfinished tower. New ideas are continually being stacked on top of old ones, which are strong enough to keep the whole thing from toppling over. Every now and then, an old block gets yanked out and replaced. 
But for the most part, ideas pile upward. What you end up with is a tower that at its base is bigger and simpler and becomes more delicate and complex toward the top. It's a pretty neat image, but it's missing one thing. Us. So now let's actually put ourselves into that picture. Let's imagine ourselves adding blocks to that tower. Is it really so surprising that some of us might add the same blocks at the same time? Of course not. Let's look at some history again to see why. Do you know who invented radio? I'll give you a moment to think on it. So who came to mind? I'll bet some of you thought of Marconi, and maybe a few of you thought of Tesla. If you thought of either one, well, you'd be right. That's right, the invention of radio is just another example of the theory of multiples at work. But let's think for a moment about what we mean when we say that someone invented something. What does it mean, for example, to have invented radio? What needed to exist first, in order for the idea of radio to pop into somebody's mind? Well, a few things. Let's imagine the idea of radio as its own little tower. At the foundation level of our idea tower named radio, you might put electricity. And that's a big idea. Electricity certainly wasn't invented by Marconi and Tesla, too. Some people would say that Benjamin Franklin discovered electricity. But they'd be wrong. He already knew electricity existed. His famous experiment with the key and the kite was about proving a connection between electricity and lightning. Electricity was discovered over the course of thousands of years. Long before Franklin, like a couple thousand years, the ancient Greeks had already observed static electricity. Somebody was rubbing fur on amber for some reason, and they got a little shock. A little bit later on, the Romans were creating iron and copper batteries to produce light. Seriously, these batteries have been known about since they were first dug up 80 years ago. And the Romans weren't alone. Similar batteries have been found at ancient Persian sites too all dependent on electricity. The point is, electricity is the base of our radio tower, and even it is really a tower of its own built by multiple teams working on their own. Okay, so what else makes up our radio tower? Well, on top of the electricity foundation are other ideas, things like electrical fields, antenna, and sound recording, for example. All big ideas themselves that make up this even bigger idea of radio. You see, the more you mentally deconstruct this radio tower, the more inevitable it starts to look. The more it becomes obvious that the invention of radio was a response to an existing field of knowledge that was pretty close to, well, tuning itself in. Okay, okay, so maybe ideas aren't that special. But what about special people? What about the idea of genius? 
Well, aside from being somewhat subjective, genius, whatever that means, is certainly in short supply. That's what makes it something we feel we must name. But many big, important ideas have been attributed to people who simply weren't geniuses. Sometimes ideas come from reasonably intelligent people who just happen to be paying attention at the right time and place. Hopefully, people like you and me. So why does any of this matter? It matters because when we overestimate the value of an idea or the exceptionality of a person who has that idea, we start acting in unproductive ways. We start hoarding our ideas because we're afraid they might be stolen and someone else might reap the reward that we feel we deserve. But hoarding doesn't preserve value. It hides it. Maybe you've seen Hoarders, the TV show. Great. Okay, well, not really great, but at least it offers us the right image. Hoarders think they're keeping stuff, but really they're burying it under piles of other worthless junk for so long that it rots. And eventually, the whole pile rots. But in that pile were plenty of things that could have been used, that should have been used. But they weren't used. They were kept. Being precious with your ideas will do nothing for you other than to stifle your output. It won't make you the most brilliant thinker or designer or writer or whatever of all time. It will make you the person who thought of something and maybe made it or wrote it down that one time. Writing especially is a practice that tends to rot quickly because of idea hoarding. That's because writing is meant to exercise ideas, not just to deliver them. In fact, let's stick with writing for a moment. Thinking of writing as simply a glory-generating idea delivery system is almost as absurd as saying that Michael Jordan was a great basketball player because of that one three-pointer he made mid-season in 1991. Ridiculous. Michael Jordan was a basketball player, not a guy who played brilliant basketball once or twice. And people who know me well take note. I just used a sports ball reference, so look out the window. Pigs are surely flying. What the history of ideas teaches us is that our best ideas are not likely to bring us glory. But that doesn't mean they're not good ideas, or that acting on them won't help us to make a contribution to our chosen field, to the lives of those we care about, to the future. It's not pessimistic to think that the idea you have has probably already been thought of by someone else. That's realistic. But it's also not a good reason to shelve your idea. Right now, as I say these very words, there are two movies being made about the exact same thing. There are multiple books being written on the same subject. There are dozens of stories being written with virtually the exact same headline for publications and websites that are themselves difficult to tell apart. There are dueling patents, competing products, CEOs on TED stages claiming the origin of some thing, some service, some idea. The world of ideas is big enough to hold all these duplicates. Because you and I, and everyone else in the world, come with a billion preferences to sort them all out. That's the point. 
Your idea may not be that original, but what you do with it, how you bring it to life, will be how you bring it to life. And that way will be better for someone than the way that someone else does it, even if they get there first. The truth is, originality may not exist, but authenticity surely does. And if that's the best thing we can shoot for, the one way we can judge the value of our ideas, then we have all we need to keep making until we have breathed our last. The future doesn't depend on originality. The future's coming no matter what. The future you want on the other hand, depends upon a lot. And it starts with you and your idea for a good future and your willingness to work for it, regardless of who's working on the same thing at the same time and regardless of who gets the credit for it later. A good future is a tower of inevitable ideas, labored over by those whose passion for the good outweighs the cravings of their ego. Let's build it together. Well, friends, that's all for today. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Design Tomorrow. If you did, find the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and give it a rating and a review. It would come as no surprise to me to discover that there's another podcast being independently made about design, technology, and being human. One that sounded kind of like mine, hosted by a person who sounded kind of like me. Honestly, I kind of expect that email to come in at some point. You know, the one that says, hey, you should check out so-and-so's podcast because it's a lot like yours. And when I do, I suddenly feel like I'm listening to a tape of myself. If and when that happens, I hope I will remember this episode and keep making this show because I trust that there's something about how I do it that makes it worthwhile. That there's something you get from it that you can't get from my Doppel show. In the meantime, you can email me any feedback you have at chris at designtomorrow.co or you can tweet me at designtomorrow, that's at D-S-G-N-T-M-R-R-W. Thanks for listening, and remember, what we do and think today can create a better tomorrow, even if someone else is doing and thinking the same thing. The more the merrier, the better the tomorrow. I'll see you then.